Now, I know a small percentage of people, that's like the, the thing they dread the most is shaking hands with a stranger at a church that they go to. But, you know, it, this is part of your personal growth. Just learning to say hello to people. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to hear some, some uh, levity in the room at times. Um, we started this series on the Word of God because a lot of reasons uh, motivating it, but to understand how we look at the Bible. Lloyd began by saying any view of the Bible that is less than the Bible's view of itself is inadequate. Um, Rob did a great job with the book bag a couple of weeks ago. Cindy and I were able to sit. I wasn't teaching that weekend. We just sat and enjoyed listening to Rob's teaching and, and the way he used that book bag, the Honda manual. How do you, how do you fix something? The Ernest and Young tax book. How do you approach it when you have a tax question? We, we tend to look at this book in those lenses. And I, I was struck by his analogy that I, I go to this for certain answers to certain questions. I go to it because I'm supposed to. I go to it because I need to. I have to. I want to. And we're driven to this book in all kinds of different ways. Uh, is it a self-help book? Is it a book only when we're in crisis and need? Is it a book that, you know, cliche, it's in the, in the hotel uh, bedside drawer when a person is down on his or her luck and there's a Gideon's Bible left in a hotel room, if you can still find a Gideon's Bible these days. Um, is the Word of God living? Is it active? Is it life-giving? Does it, does it fill you? Is it more than just one other big book of life? And why we look at the scripture the way we do. Over 2,000 years and it's compiling and over 40 authors contribute to this document. And yet it is uh, vilified, it's mocked, it's uh, misrepresented all the time as the most current issue of Newsweek about two weeks ago now uh, did on its front page. And it will always be. But we hope that you will come to not just love the word, but love the author. And the way to love the author is to know his word. Today, I want us to think about the word on the word. Uh, Lloyd chose the title for this message, and it's, it's, it's actually a double or triple entendre, meaning the word, Jesus Christ on the word, the Bible, or it could be the word explaining Jesus Christ as the Word. So you could take it a couple of different ways. Um, but our hope this morning for you and for me as we think about this, what does Christ say about His Word? I want to give you three uh, phrases to keep in mind, and that is that He confirms it, He explains it, and He fulfills it. Christ confirms the Scripture, He explains the Scripture, and He fulfills the Scripture. And there's a lot more we could look at, but I just want to focus in on those three things. He confirms it, he explains it, and he fulfills it. I don't know about you, but when you go to um, a bookstore, there aren't very many brick-and-mortar stores anymore, but there was a time when you went, let's say you're going to buy a book on a computer software or on uh, gardening or maybe writing or maybe uh, you want to supplement to Pro Tools that's in a text, and you go to a bookstore and you look through 10 titles, you're looking for what? An endorsement. You want to find someone you respect or some group you respect that endorses that book, and that's going to be the one that you'll more than likely buy. So if it's endorsed by someone you like or know, or the authors, or you don't know anything about them, never heard of that endorsement, you know, you're less willing to perhaps buy the book. Let me suggest that when we think about Christ endorsing this, there's no greater endorsement. There's no one better to and write on the flyleaf of the book, best book ever, period, none equal. I mean, there's no one else that could say that but Christ. 
We've quoted Kevin DeYoung from the book that Rob, Lloyd, Bill, and I have been reading. It's impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than did Christ. Or to say it another way, Christ gives the scripture the greatest endorsement possible. So today, again, he confirms it, he explains it, and he fulfills it. So let's look at some passages to try to support those ideas, or rather passages that support that idea. Uh, So turning your Bible first to Matthew 4, Matthew 4, the temptation accounts. As we think about Christ confirming the scripture, if you were to take your New Testament and look up every time the word written was used just in the New Testament, you'd find about 120, 123, depending on your English Bibles, the way they translated the word written. Now, it's a word we just gloss over very quickly. About 40 times you're going to find that in the Gospels alone. When the Bible in the New Testament says it is written, 99% of the time it's referring to what? The Old Testament. So the authors of the New Testament say it is written, it is written. They're talking about something written in the Old Testament because the New is being compiled still as we read the New Testament. It's not yet been compiled in the form that we have today. So when they say it's written, it's written, it's written, There are lots of different ways we hear God's voice captured. The Lord said. Has not the Lord said. God spoke. It is written. God commands. God gives you institutes, uh, uh, statutes and commandments and laws and regulations. God is speaking. So one of the ways, many, we capture that in the way we read the Bible is it is written. Now, in the temptation accounts, uh, you know this if you've read these stories before or, or in a, been in a church that's taught about them. It's very easy to see. Christ has gone 40 days into the wilderness, which parallels the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings of the, of the, uh, the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Um, they're going to be tempted in the wilderness. Christ is going to be tempted in the wilderness. Those 40 days are a parallel commemorative reminder, throwback to what Israel went through. But he will not succumb to temptation. Satan is going to appear as the tempter. And the accounts occur in a couple of the gospel records, but Matthew 4, 4, in the middle of this temptation account, but he answered Jesus and said, it is written. Each of the times he responds to the tempter, he begins, it is written. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Christ's response to Satan is not to get into a war of words with Satan. Christ's response to Satan is to say, God has said. Boom. I'm not listening to your temptation, Satan, because God has spoken on the subject. He's clear on the subject. It is written, you don't tempt God. And rather than that, um, I have food you don't know about. His word is my food, he'll say later on. Drop down a verse or two to verse 4. Satan then is a brilliant creature, and he responds to Jesus in verse 6. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Clever. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So one takeaway is the tempter, Satan, knows the Bible which is kind of chilling to think about. Satan knows the scripture, truthfully, better than you and me. But he misinterprets it. He misapplies it, as he does here. He's very shrewd. He's very wise. He's very clever. He's evil incarnate. So when, when Jesus then is responding, he, he's, 
in the human form in the temptation accounts, the debate will go on forever. Uh, could he have sinned or could he not have sinned? Nevertheless, he's being tempted. And the way he responds is, it's written. It's written. It's written. It's written. Christ also confirmed the scripture pertaining to himself. Turn over to Matthew 26, just a few pages to your right. Matthew 26, verse 31. So he confirms the scripture by referring to, look, God has said these things. It is written. There's something in the graphe, the fact that it was written down. God spoke. It was written. We go back to reading what he said. It is written. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away of me, uh, fall away because of me this night, for it is written. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He knew the disciples would deny him. This sets up the denial account where uh, Peter and the others have said, we'll never deny you. Even the death will go with you all the way. And of course, when the Romans come, they scatter immediately. And then we see Peter in the charcoal fire outside the courtyard where Jesus is being uh, falsely tried. Uh, but in the whole, all, the, all the disciples agree. They would, they would never leave him. They would never deny him. He says, no, it's written you're going to scatter. See, the God-man knew the hearts of his disciples. He knew the men. He knew what they were thinking. It's kind of scary to think about that, but he knew what they were thinking. <laughs> he didn't base their personality types or their past behavior on their future. He bases his future on the fact that God has said, I'm going to strike down the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. And that's a, a big lesson for you and me, because experientially, we look at our past, we project what the future's going to be, we know how people react, we know what people do and think and say, not Christ. Christ is grounded on, God said. It is written. The Lord has said. The Lord has spoken. Christ is confirming the scripture here pertaining to himself. You're going to scatter, and the shepherd's going to be struck down. That's what I know for a fact. You think you're going to stay with me all the way to the end? No, I know you're not, because it was written. God spoke that you were going to scatter, and I was going to be struck down. In Luke 18, if you jump over there, again, we're thinking about how Christ confirms the Scripture, how we know this is the Word of God based on what Christ does and what He says. There are innumerable ways we could look at this and Countless, literally, that's not, that's not hyperbole. There are countless ways we could look at the verses to see. I'm simply trying to give you a way to get your hands around it. He's confirming some things. He's going to explain some things. And he's going to fulfill some things. We're thinking about how he confirms the scripture. Listen to Luke 18, verses 31 and following. Christ is confirming what God has said, what the word has said. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going through up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem because you're going up to worship. It doesn't matter where the geography is. If you're going down south or east, you're going up because you're going up to the mount to worship him. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him and the third day he will rise again. He's telling the twelve. He pulls them aside. He's told them this on a number of occasions. I'm going to, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going, to, they're going to brutalize me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried, and I'll come back from the dead. And they don't get it. Now, don't be too hard on the 11 or 12, because you and I would have 
more than likely, I, I would have been just the same. Just the same. We have Peter, who's the chief spokesman and the chief denier. Peter, having nothing to say, said something all the time. I'm a lot like Peter, so I get it. It's quiet, we've got to fill the space, and that's what Peter does. And we're glad, because what Peter asks and says prompts the Lord to say a lot of things that perhaps are helpful. So Peter is the one speaking so often, leading the pack, and Christ says, look, it's written. I know how this story ends. When we go up to Jerusalem for the preceding Passover experiences, I know what's going to happen. Not because I can foretell the future, not because God's revealed it to me, although we could argue he had. I know it because it's written. Because God spoke it a long time ago. And this, he is the agency that's fulfilling this prophecy. So Christ confirms the scripture on a number of ways. I'm just arguing here because of the written word of God and how it pertained to himself. Christ confirms the scripture. Secondly then, he explains it. He confirms it. He explains it. He fulfills it. Let's look at a couple of passages where he explains it. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first chapter of John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John's Gospel. Now, this prologue is one of the most beautifully written parts of your New Testament. Uh, John's Gospel is at once the simplest New Testament Greek and yet the most profound theology at the same time. It's a beautiful book. When you go to grad school, if you learned Koine Greek, or you go to seminary and you beat your head against the wall learning Greek and Hebrew, uh, once you start sort of defining terms and syntax and knowing how structures of sentence work, you start translating the Gospel of John. Part of it's because you know a lot of it, even though you don't know you do it, and part of it's because it's such simple Greek. But it's very deceptive because even though it's simple Greek, it's th- theology is, I, I love it because it's, it's like God laughing. It's so simple, but it's so profound. And for you songwriters and you who like lyrics, this passage, it, seemed, it, would, just, it would draw me, the poet in me is like this big. But to you lyricists, this, the language is so neat and textured, the way he writes this under the Spirit's guidance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. A couple of observations. First, the word word. The word word here is the word logos. Um, Logos is a word that predates Jesus. It predates the Bible. Some 600 years before Christ comes along, a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus is the one who uses it and defines it. 600 years before Christ is born, a guy is using the word logos, and the way he defines it as the divine reason or plan that coordinates the universe. 600 years before Christ is born, a Greek scholar defines the word logos as a divine reason or plan that coordinates the universe. So it seems very fitting then that John the Gospel writer would say, what's a divine reason or plan? That's how you explain Jesus. He's the word. He's the logos. And the Greek audience would get that word better than the Hebrew audience. So John uses this word that has this expansive meaning of divine plan. A very simple way of saying verses 1, 2, 3 are, never was a time when the word was not. Never was a time 
when the Word was not. The Logos has existed forever. If you were with us during our study of Genesis, we spent a good deal of time explaining Genesis chapter 1, the pre-existent nature of Jesus Christ. Not just God the Father and the Spirit, but that Christ has existed forever. I often use the illustration when I'm asked about the will of God and our life's decisions. I use this silly illustration. If, if all of humanity, not just your life, but all of humanity, from, from Adam until the end of humanity, was a one-inch linear piece of string, the sovereignty of God is an immeasurable sphere within that little, where that little piece of string exists. For you sci-fi people, God is outside space and time. In Galatians 4, 4, what does it say? At the proper time, he sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. There's a time in that one-inch timeline of all humanity where Christ becomes incarnate a baby. But he existed before that piece of string ever began in this immeasurable sphere that God sustains the universe. Far beyond the Hubble. That's how sovereign, how big God is. This is how small and finite human linear equations are. What I just said will never be repeated in the exact same way. This morning at 8 o'clock is gone forever. We're in a continuum. We can't break in this world unless you go see Interstellar. Then you can mess with your head. Never was a time when the word was not. It's always existed. We're not talking about this word. We're talking about the word Christ, the divine plan. I doubt Heraclitus had any idea that his word, the divine plan and purpose, logos, was going to mean Christ was the divine plan and purpose. So John uses the simple word logos to explain it. You could even go so far as to say never was a time that there were things that did not depend upon him for their existence. We may not acknowledge that we depend on him, but we do. The word was with God. There's an intimate personal relationship. Kent Hughes says of that phrase, Jesus and God were face to face. The word was with God. And oh, by the way, the word was God. He is God. He's not a little chip off the old Trinitarian block. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Woo, he's just a little fragment over here. Three in one. Great mystery. The Word has existed forever. The Word was in the closest possible relationship to God the Father as part of the Trinitarian Godhead. And the Word, in fact, in case you missed it, John says, was God. What he's saying in this first verse is Jesus has always existed and he's the very form of God. That's how he begins the prologue. Drop down to verse 14. Verses 6 to 13, he talks about John the Baptist coming on and how John confirms the word. But I want to look at where John picks up the incarnation in verse 14. And the word became flesh. The logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, meaning the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. See, John the Baptist understood Christ's eternality. In fact, if you know your Bible history at all, John the Baptist is what? Is he older or younger than Jesus? He's older. Because Mary is pregnant with Jesus and goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's got John already six months or so in development. And John says, he's, he's existed before me. He's a higher rank. The Baptist got it. 
Verse 16, for of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. The word of the law, this corpus of the law, which you could say the Ten Commandments or the law of the Old Testament would be a better expression. That'd be the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's called the law. The corpus of the law, the Pentateuch, those five books comprise the law. The law came through Moses, John says here. But look what he says further. Grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. God gave his word, the law, the first five books, to Moses. But you got to have grace and truth to put it together. He's existed forever. The law came at a point in time, too, under Moses' leadership. But now Jesus comes with grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. On the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, verse 18 is the zenith of this passage. You might have heard Lloyd or Bill or me use the word exegete or exegetical. It's a term that means a lot of things. It, it typically, in, in these weird seminary theological circles that you know, we have come from, exegesis is your diligence of language, uh, grammar, uh, history, setting, context, how the book is written. You're doing a lot of you know, nitty-gritty, dirty, dirty uh, detail work to find out the meaning of words. That's, we might call that exegesis. We're putting it together. The word simply means to explain something. The word explained here in verse 18 is where we get the word exegesis in our English language. It's, it's exegaomai, exegaomai. And we bring that into English, exegete. Why am I belaboring this? Because Jesus exegetes God. Jesus explains God, is what the verse is saying. We can't comprehend God. He's too big. He's this infinitely immeasurable sphere out, outside the boundary of our one-inch linear world. We can't explain him, so he gives us Jesus to explain him. Because we can't comprehend the infinite. No one has seen God at any time. We know for a fact that they did. What's he mean? Is the Bible wrong? Moses can't see God is what the back of this passage is. And so what does he say? He puts him in the cleft of the rock and then the glory of God passes by and then Moses is allowed to see the backside of God's glory. But in chapter 24, Aaron and Moses and the elders are seeing God. Is the Bible incorrect? Is the Bible wrong? Now we know about what we call theophanies or Christophanies. That means a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before he was born of Mary. And we've got a dozen easily in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up, whether he comes as the angel of the Lord, where he's in the fiery furnace with the Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, where he, whether he is wrestling with Jacob as the captain of the army, when he comes to Abraham, when the sacrifices are offered, there are a number of times Jesus shows up in this appearance, and so we call that a theophany or a Christophany where Christ appeared before him. So you can't comprehend the infinite God, so I'll give you, bad illustration, quote, a finite, close quote, picture of God in Jesus. He's not finite, but God's giving us a picture of what he's like incarnate. He fully exists in that state, I would argue, but nevertheless, that's how God explains himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Does that kind of make sense? What he's saying in verse 18? This logos has existed forever. We can't comprehend it. So he showed us Jesus. He gave us someone we could look at and hear 
And we talk to him. And he explains things. And he teaches stuff to us. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. That's the simple answer to the question. Well, he confirms the scripture. He explains the scripture. Finally, he fulfills the scripture. Uh, turn to Luke 24. 24-25. While you're turning to Luke, I'm going to read one verse from Matthew 5. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus says, I didn't come on the scene to say the law is abrogated or negated. I came to fulfill the law. A lot of times you'll hear Christians, well-intentioned Christians say, Oh, we don't have to follow the Old Testament laws. That's half true, half wrong. You don't have to, for example, worry about milk and meat. I mean, goodness gracious, what self-respecting southerner could ever separate milk and meat? I mean, if you say chicken and fried, you got milk and meat in that process, right? You, I mean, that's, that's un-American, so you got to have milk and meat. So what happens there? There were certain dietary restrictions that were exclusionary, certain nationalistic things that excluded Israel, upon Israel only. But once that broke open and the gospel goes to all the ethnos, Acts 1.8, when the gospel goes beyond the Jew to the Gentile, uh, Peter, a God-fearing Jew who's never been, he's never once had shrimp, never once had a crawdad, never once eaten an unclean lower crustacean. And he says, God says, go to Cornelius, the Gentiles, and eat whatever they put before you. It's a hard thing for Peter. Now, I've never in my life eaten an unclean dish. You go to Cornelius and you do whatever he puts before you, and then Jesus will do the same to the disciples. Whatever they put before you, eat it. And then he sees that Christianity isn't what we eat and don't eat. It's not meat sacrifice here or there. That's nothing to God. So the law is fulfilled, not, not erased, the law is fulfilled. You no longer have to subscribe to that law because Christ fulfilled that law. Make sense? In fact, the Ten Commandments, so-called Ten Commandments, all of them except one, are explicitly or implicitly commanded in the New Testament. You know what the one that's not explicitly or implicitly communicated in the New Testament? You're not to lie, not to steal, not to dishonor your parents, not to commit murder, not to commit adultery. What's the one that's not explicitly mentioned in the New Testament? Sabbath. Because it becomes the first day of the week, and it's a gift God gives, not a law requirement. All the others are implicitly or explicitly repeated. So the law is fulfilled. It doesn't mean we erase the Old Testament. All right, I've gone on that enough. Christ fulfills the law. That's the point. Now look at Luke 24, 25. He said to them, O foolish men of slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He's talking about the Old Testament Bible. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained, not the same word, but another one, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Those of you who know the backdrop of the story, this is the two disciples that are walking. We know one of them is Cleopas. They're walking on the way to Emmaus. It's after Jesus has been crucified, after his burial, after his many appearances. And they're going to Emmaus, and they're talking. And it's the buzz. It's the news of the day. They can't not talk about it. And this traveler joins them on the road, and they're chatting it up. And, and Jesus, who they don't know, she asks a few softball questions. And they go, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know these things? And they kind of chide him and they talk about that he was the hope of, of, the, of, of Israel. 
And then Jesus turns to them and explains to them, and this is where Luke writes it so well, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. He's explaining himself in all the scripture. Now, there's this romantic part of us. I remember in college reading this for the first time going, oh, that I could have been on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and that other guy in Jesus and just listened. He explained everything. Wow. I mean, there's even seminars called the road to Emmaus. No disrespect intended. But it's like, what would we give to walk that road to Emmaus with Jesus? A newsflash. You got more here than they got. You got a lot more than even a four-hour walk. Now, I'm not diminishing the romance of walking with Jesus Christ and having your questions answered. I'm not minimizing that. But I would argue they're all here already. There's a lot more here than the two disciples we're privy to on that brief walk before Jesus disappears. Christ, contrary to the Jewish leaders' expectations, fulfills the law. Contrary to what the Jew in power thought when he would come, he fulfilled the law because he is the law. He is the word. In Luke 24, 27, it says he explained it to them. That word there can be used two primary ways. The first way is translation. Um, when I used to do this, I don't much anymore, but used to go overseas and train pastors, and we would have 300-some pastors, maybe uh, Russian pastors, um, hundreds of pastors in Nigeria who spoke Hausa, and so you have an interrupter, you have an interpreter, and you say a short sentence, and then they translate it, and you say, and that is explaining. What this stupid white guy who doesn't know our language is saying is, and then they explain it to their audience, and if you use a bad analogy or a bad joke or the wrong imagery, if they're good interpreters, they clean it up or they don't translate it. It's always telling when you say something really long and I say like one sentence. And you look at them and they go, I'll tell you later. You know, you can't use that illustration here. Um, and so they're, they're what? They're explaining something that has to bridge a context. Think about what Jesus does here. He explains to them the things concerning himself. There, there was a translation gap. The second way the word is used, which is more uh, in our context, is that it clarifies something to make it understandable. And of course, the biggest point of clarification for the disciples was, why do you have to die? We thought he was going to be a king. Well, he is king, but he's not a king the way you think a king should operate. And he has to die to fulfill the law to pay for your sins and mine. And so he explains this to them, and notice, in all the scriptures. Lloyd talked about the circular reasoning, and there's a sense in which we are, but where do you go for an endorsement for a book that was written by God, about God, for people? If Billy Graham endorses it, is that sufficient? If some other world leader endorses it, is that enough? The highest endorsement is Christ endorsing his own word that God the Father has, we might say, penned, quote-unquote, from eternity past. He confirms it, he explains it, and he fulfills it. You know, I, I don't want, and, and Lloyd, Bill, and Rob and I have talked a lot about this a lot. We do not want you to sit through this series on the Bible feeling guilty or ashamed or ill-equipped or unprepared to read the Bible. We would fail you miserably and we dishonor the word. We are, we are convinced that doesn't help anybody. 
And one thing we have talked about at great length is, and we believe this, we believe you want to know the word. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. You passed 27 churches by the time you got here. A lot of them closer and prettier than this building. But you came. So I would say the vast majority of you would love to know the word. Some of you do. Some of you are in Bible study methods, precepts, BSF. You've been doing this. You've taught it for years. You do this backwards and forwards. God bless you. Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. But some of us, we don't, the only time we open it is when I say turn to Luke 24. And some of you don't even bring Bibles. I'm not shaming you. I'm making a statement. Now, you might have it on your device. Cool. Good for you. It's faster. I'll give you that. Um, but we want you to love it. Not have to. We want you to want to open it, not should. We want you to wake up in the morning and go, wow, I'd love to sit down with my scripture and my, you know, why is it coffee at home tastes better than anywhere else in the world? In your cup? Why is that? Or tea, whatever your drink is. Green tea with Trulia in it. Stevia. We're funny people, aren't we? You got your spot, your chair, your lamp, your... You know, I do. Got my chair. That's the place I want to be. Do you do it out of guilt and shame? I'm supposed to do it? Do it for 21 days to become a habit? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. On we go. The question becomes, do you want to know him? Not do you want to know a book? Um, when I was in seminary and at graduate school, I had professors who were authors as well, and uh, they wrote books. I've got several that are treasures to me. I've gotten rid of most of my library, but I've kept the books that were instrumental or those professors had a big imprint in my life, my soul. And most of them over the years have written me these, you know, I mean, not, I mean they've written something in the first two pages of the book. Take, hey, so-and-so, would you... Would you just write your name in the book, and I'm going, yeah, yeah. And that book becomes a treasure to me because my professor wrote in it. And I've got several in particular that I've bought the library, um, those non-acid uh, covers, the library books put around their books, and I've got those things there in a special place because they're just like really important books to me. And I'll never get rid of them. And when I die, my kids will go, what's he about? And I throw them away. So, you know, but, but they're really important to me. And when I open those books, I, I, maybe you have an author like this. When I open these books in particular, I hear the guy's voice when I'm reading his words. In fact, it's kind of distracting. I have to go quit listening to so-and-so and just read the text because it takes a lot longer when I hear him saying those words. Maybe you don't have that experience. I am weird. You can, you can say that. Everybody says it. I know I'm weird. I'm happy in my weirdness, so leave me alone. But, um, but I can hear those guys' voices when I read their books. Have any of you ever stood in line to get a, a book signed? Be proud. Put it up real high. Let's see. 
Um, <clears throat> my son worked on a, a tour for Ollie North uh, two years ago now, I guess. He was a roadie on this book that Ollie had done. It was pictures of all the men and women who'd lost um, arm and limb and sight and injuries. And he went, and it was, it's a beautiful book. It's almost a photo book more than a typical Ollie North book. But it's a, a stories of these people and their lives and their sacrifice. And so, and, and my son said we would go to these, these places and the line would be all the way around the Sam's Club or whatever it was already. And they'd sell out all the books because they want to stand in line and have Ollie North sign their book. I mean, that was his fan base, okay? They would sign his book. And they got to shake his hand and take a selfie and leave. And, uh, and you know exactly how that story goes from then. They go, yeah, I know Ollie North. I met Ollie. He signed my book. I mean, you know, see it? He signed my book. And then about a year later, it's like, yeah, Ollie and I talked one time. Ollie told me, like, this is the guy, your best friend. You saw him for 18 seconds, but now he's your friend. What's going on there? Did they, did they, did they like the book, the worship tool? Yeah, they like the book, but it's that they know the guy that wrote it. And that's the connection. Maybe you've done it with a musician. Maybe you stood in line to have your CD liner signed by someone. I mean, if you could go stand in line for Coldplay or U2 or whatever, would you stand in line for two hours to have one of those guys take a pencil? And someone say, mm. <laughs> some of us would. We stand in line. You'd wrap around Bridgestone two and three times to get somebody to mm, in front of your CD jacket or maybe your shirt, maybe your arm. Why? Because there's some connection to that individual. My, uh, probably my best friend, I've got four or five guys that I would say at any time are my best friends in life. They know my soul, I know theirs, they know my secrets, I know their secrets. Robert in particular and I have been friends for over 30 years. I guess it's getting on 33 years this year we've been friends. And I can't explain our friendship. Both of our wives think we're crazy. We like the same music, the same movies, we have the same taste in food, it's ridiculous. We're both kind of car junkies. We're tech junkies to some level. I mean, it's just, it's like we're twin sons of a different mother. And so he and I get together from time to time. He'll fly here, I'll fly there. And when I go see him, you know what he does? He clears his schedule. When he comes to see me, I clear my schedule. Sometimes we go away together, maybe to a conference. It's a guy's, but we go to the conference. We go do something, and we just hang out. We go, we eat our brains. I mean, we eat so bad the whole time. We go see a movie that our wives probably would never want to see. Uh, we talk about parenting and, and our kids getting married, and he's got grandchildren now. I don't, but uh, we, we, I mean, I know all his thick and thin. He knows all my thick and thin. We're like inseparable. His wife is so funny because we'll sing the same. We'll know all the lyrics to a particular song. And his wife just goes, you guys are just sick. And she just leaves us. It's really fun. Um, he knows my soul. I know him. How did Robert and I become such good friends? Reduce it all down. Time and a common interest. You see, if we didn't have something in common, the relationship would have never gone anywhere. But we had music in common and films in common and particular kinds of food in common. We had things in common, and we both enjoyed that. Now, we were different ways, but, but it's what the common that drew us together. And we spent a truckload of time together over 34 years. Ten days does not go by where one doesn't call the other. Now, I'm not into FaceTiming. I think FaceTiming is kind of weird. 
those of you that Skype your kids, that's different. But FaceTiming like a friend, it's just weird to me. I don't know why. It's just kind of, let's just talk on the phone. Uh, but he's the only guy I FaceTime with. And he'll face, in the middle of the day, my thing will go off. And I go, mm, anybody in the office? Hey, Robert. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just weird. We have a lot of time and a common interest. How do you know God as your friend? You need time and you need a common interest. Robert and I could never be great friends without something in common and a lot of time. You will never be a friend of your Savior without something in common and a lot of time. Well, I have never done it before. No problem. He's a very patient friend. You start somewhere. And this friend loves you. He knows all your secrets. He knows all about you. He knows all the things you've tried to hide. He knows all the demons you wrestle with. He knows the darkest part of your soul. And he still loves you. And he died for you. He wants to engage with you. He wants a relationship with you. So what do you need? Time. Don't have to worry about the commonality. To put it in a very bad illustration, he likes the same kind of music you like. He likes the same kind of food you like. He likes the same kind of books you like. Bad illustration. Get the point. He's available. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's not a friend who gets disgusted and walks away from a friendship. Maybe you're not a morning person. That's okay. Maybe you are a morning person. Morning person, I mean, mornings to me... The reason they work is because things are quiet. I can't turn on the email. Can't turn on the technology. So which is why I'm an old school. I mean, I love technology. I got all of it. But uh, it comes to the Bible. It's a book and pens and coffee. Because I'll mess it up if I turn on the technology. It's gone. Email has a life of its own. Boom. History. Never look at it again. And I don't pretend when I'm preparing a sermon that that's an intimate relationship with the Lord. Oh, there are times when it is, but that's a different thing. That's, that's my role. That's my job. That's my whatever skill set. But I've got to have time with him. He's not mad if you don't. He's not disappointed if you don't. Because the perfect friend loves at all times. The perfect friend just wonders, Wow. We could be such better friends. You want to know the mind of God in life? You want to know what he thinks about your marriage? Parenting? Managing your money? Living in a community? Concern for those that don't know Christ? How to deal with guilt and shame and sin? How to be free from guilt and shame and sin. How to not be anxious. How to love Jesus, not just look at it as a reference book. How to see his commands as delight, not wait. On and on we could go. It's sitting in your lap. It's sitting on your shelf. It's sitting at home. It's the mind of God in print. And he longs. For you to know him the way he knows you. As we have been doing this series, we will stand and read the first two questions of the short, 
shorter Westminster Confessions as you stand at this time. And we will be dismissed with these two questions and answers. What is the chief end of man? How, uh, what rule hath God given to direct how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God contained in the scriptures. The only rule to direct how we may glorify and enjoy him. Go start enjoying him. God bless you.